it, look to him. This morning I want to invite you to look in his holy word. And we're looking at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to look at the first eight verses. And this is really a second part of this message of abiding in Christ. Continuation from last week. John 15 is an Metaphor, an illustration Jesus uses concerning the vine. He's going to teach some important truths to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He's going to die the next day. He needs to equip his disciples to be prepared to go out from there and preach the gospel to the nations. And they're going to need strength. They're going to need courage. They're going to need great conviction. And Jesus will remind them of some of the things that he has taught them. And he does it through here, in this case, through an illustration. And as I said last week, and I just want to remind you that when you come across an illustration of this sort in the text of Scripture... We have to be careful always not to press it farther than it needs to go. Teaching, doctrine, is ultimately based on that which is clear, the didactic teaching of Christ in particular. This illustration is more or less a convention to help the listener to be reminded and perhaps assimilate, in this case, Abstract truths by using this concrete example, this symbol, the symbol of the vine. The symbol, always remember, is not the substance. So every aspect in it doesn't necessarily apply. And we may agree to disagree about a few of the nuances there, but it's, it, it, there's an art in the science of biblical interpretation Metaphors and illustrations lean towards that artful aspect of understanding. So, the thrust, though, is to be certain that our conclusions and our ultimate conclusions don't contradict with Scripture, but are derived from it. This illustration here that Jesus uses concerning the vine in John chapter 15 is used of the disciples to help them and to remind them that indeed they are to remain in Christ or, as our text reads, abide in him. Notice verse 4, this is a command, and as we read through it, he says for them to abide in him. As we read through it, this phrase is continued in a number of ways. The Greek word for abide here primarily means to remain, to stay, or reside. It conveys the idea of enduring, continuing, or waiting. Abide here is abiding in relationship to Christ. Remain in Him. Stay with Him. Dwell with Him. And it's in the backdrop, the immediate backdrop of who? The apostate, Judas who was in that group, who was with Christ, among them and in them, in that sense, in the inner circle 
of all things with Christ, but he didn't remain. He didn't abide. He didn't stay. He, he was sent out. And true followers of Christ were those who did remain, those 11 that were there, and most notably, Peter. John chapter 6, in a setting in which Jesus gave very difficult teaching, doctrine which really contradicted some of the ideology of man, the folks are ready to leave. And this huge following that had gathered around Jesus abandoned him and left him. Well, if God's like that, I don't want any part. And so they left. Jesus turns to his own disciples and said, Well, are you going to go too? Peter's response in John 6, 68 is, is this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Beloved, that is the only way you're going to keep somebody abiding remaining, staying, and enduring with Christ is if they know for sure that he is indeed the Holy One of God. That's what does it. No trickery, no gimmicks. Simply this, Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. And where else are you going to go? There is no other place. That's the confession of a true disciple who will indeed abide. Oh, they may wander at times, and as Peter did too. They may get distracted. But they will return. The disciples needed a reminder of Christ's grace and who he is on a regular basis. So the hymn writer wrote, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So Jesus was reminding them of his grace and mercy, and that they would know that indeed he is the Holy One of God. And that conviction in your heart will bring about this abiding in Christ. Notice in our text, we'll read 1 through 8 in John 15 again. As we read through it, think through the phrase, abide in me, as it's mentioned more than once. John 15 begins this way, I am the true vine, Jesus speaking, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away like, the, like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we will hear and heed the words of Christ today. May your people be helped, nourished in the true word, both the saving and sanctifying word of God. And pray through the power of the Spirit, you will enlighten our hearts to hear and heed the words of Christ today. In his name, amen. Abiding in Christ in our text here is remaining in fellowship or communion with Christ. This is, of course, a spiritual reality. It's abstract or intangible in many senses, since, as I mentioned, Jesus uses this concrete or physical illustration to communicate this truth. I think it's helpful to unpack some of the key elements to this metaphor. Last week, we spent time talking about both the vine and the vine dresser. Remember the the vine, Jesus qualifies it in verse 1. He says, not only I'm the vine, but I am the true vine. If you remember that, pointed to the fact that he is the reality, he is the substance to which all the symbols pointed to. He is the vine. And I was overtaken in my study just thinking on that fact. They might have been gazing at the very temple itself and seeing the vine engraved there as a symbol to remind them of something. And here it was in front of them, God incarnate, Jesus Christ saying, I am, I am the true vine. That's who is speaking. The vine dresser, of course, he identifies as the father has a vine dresser in this agricultural aspect, a farmer, if you will, plans and prepares, plants, prunes, cleans out. It is speaking of God's ultimate decree in all things. There's nothing that escapes his providence. All things are under his care and control. He is not abandon his creation like some sort of wild resource to go off in and about himself. He's always engaged in it. He is the vine dresser and he has a purpose for all things. Even that which might be hurtful and yes, even that which is evil which he will ultimately destroy through the true vine, Jesus Christ. But there's two other elements that we're going to focus on this morning. One is the branches that are mentioned, and two, the fruit. We'll look into that in a little greater depth this morning. 
First, let's consider the branches in this metaphor. Branches, as you might think, would refer to people, people in, in general. But this message here, though, is primarily for his true disciples. Notice verse 5. I am the vine. He repeats that and he says, I am the vine. And who? You are the branches, the ones to whom he is speaking to. You are the branches. But there's other branches there as well. In this metaphor, it seems there's two types of branches or people that are in view. I would define them this way. Fruitful branches and fruitless branches. They describe, in this simple imagery, imagine a vine with branches on it, and some of them have fruit, and some of them don't have fruit. Two categories. Two distinctions. Might I add, this is the most essential distinction between human beings. Our culture and our world has gone crazy on a lot lesser things. Things that don't ultimately endure. They're fixated on gender. They're fixated on ethnicity. These are, all, these are important distinctions in the world in which we live, to some degree, but they're not ultimate. They're not eternal. That which is ultimate and should get the priority of our thoughts and times are those things that will endure, and that is the branches with the fruit and the branches without the fruit. That is, two groups. That is a group that is, would be considered saved from their sin and a group that is lost therein. That is what is paramount. God incarnate comes to his people, his disciples, to tell them about this truth and to put it in a memorable way in which they can carry with them. In illustration, I imagine every time they're out about in the countryside and seeing a bunch of vines and they can see dead branches and alive branches. They can see fruitful branches and fruitless branches. They can see some that bear much fruit and some that little. And always it brings them back to mind this very teaching of Jesus Christ right here. I am comes God incarnate. He cares enough to tell them this truth. Fruitless branches, branches without any fruit in this illustration. Again, don't push it too far. But the fruitless branches are said to be taken away by the Father. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Speaking of the Father, the vine dresser. In me, now I know we talked about that last week. Some folks see that phrase and say, well, they have to be genuinely in Christ that is, that is redeemed. And there are people who would affirm that. But in context, I don't think that's the thrust of what he's saying. That's pushing the analogy a bit too far. 
After all, as I already alluded to, Judas was in Christ in the sense that he was in his inner circle. He was around them into receiving Passover before Christ ultimately sent him away. He is the apostate, and that's what he's referring to in verse 2. The one who doesn't bear fruit, the Father takes them away in apostasy. That's Judas. They're in Christ, but not genuinely abiding in him. That's the problem. They're hanging around. Oh, they might come to church. They might come to worship services. They may engage in all kinds of philanthropy, but they're not really in Christ. And that's what's crucial. Alive in him. Verse 6 affirms that, and that's why I said in context, this has to be those that are in, those that are apostate, that are being taken away. It's taken away in judgment. Verse 6, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. They have no other value. Little scrubby sticks and so forth, you're not going to make furniture out of it. You're not going to make anything substantial to, as a tool with it. So what are they good for? To be burned. That is, in this imagery, certain judgment awaits all people who are in that category of fruitlessness. It's a frightful thought. Could you imagine having a garden, eating it of yourself? Maybe some of you do. What do you do with the worthless debris that's hanging about? You take it away for destruction. To throw it away, to throw it on some pile of rotting material, you may burn them. That makes perfect sense here. All of humanity, since the fall of Adam, begin in that state of condemnation. Remember John chapter 3 and verse 18, John 3, 18, where Jesus explains that whoever believes in him, that is whoever has faith in Christ, is in the category of the what? Not condemned. But whoever does not believe is then thrown into the category of the condemned? No, they are condemned already. That's the natural state since the fall of Adam. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's condemned already. It's a lie in our culture, in this thought, that folks just begin in some sort of neutral state in which you're Destiny really depends on the good choices that you might make. Unbelief ultimately is the natural state of fallen man. And it is going to take a miracle of God's grace and mercy and loving kindness to change that condition. The condition of the believer here reported in our illustration is that of dead wood. And how would you give life to dead wood? <laughs> Fruitfulness 
then we can conclude isn't that which brings about life to the vine, to the branch. Fruitfulness, if a branch in this illustration has it, it's a product, a byproduct, a natural, if you can think, result of a living organism in accordance with its nature. Notice verse 3. He talks about the status. Now he draws it back to just his disciples, this inner group. Judas already sent away. Now this inner group, he says, you specifically, verse 3, you're already clean. How? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. And that's how life comes. This, this, this clean is, is that they are, they are made righteous in Christ. A specific state of being. And how would it come about? It comes about by the words of Christ. That's the supernatural work of Christ. Paul would tell the church at Rome that faith is going to come by hearing and the hearing of the words of Christ. This is why we sit here week after week after week preach Christ and Him crucified. It pleases God that through this foolishness of what we're preaching to save those who would believe. <laughs> 1 Corinthians one twenty one. If you're a fruitful branch in this analogy, you're not fruitful by your own efforts and works, but by the divine grace of the vine dresser. Paul would tell his young protege Titus in Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Is this a supernatural work of God's grace that would bring death to life? We're not preaching rehabilitation. I affirm it and I hope people get their act together. That would be great. But it's also artificial. Rehabilitation is not going to bring about life to dead branches. It's going to take a supernatural resurrection to life. You can stick artificial fruit on dead branches. But the nature of it will be made known. The third thing I want to say about this fruitful, fruitless branches is that fruitfulness in and of itself reveals the nature of the branch. Here I invite you to hold your place in John 15 and turn to, John, to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. And we'll look at a few verses in context there. Matthew 7. Fruitlessness reveals the nature of the branch. That's how you tell. You don't tell because somebody walked an aisle when they're five years old and got dunked in water. 
You don't tell because somebody signed a card at some point in time, or even now they affirm a group of facts that are part of somebody's creed. According to Christ, it is by their fruit. You will know them, and it is a way in which you could examine yourself. Now you might say, Wayne, don't be so judgmental. Doesn't seven one say, judge not, lest you be not judged? You know, that's one of the... Next John 3.16, that's it. They all know those two. And I think John 3.16, just because it's been at football games before. But this one, somehow, it's intrinsically known. They might not know where it is, but they know what it is. Judge not. Well, you'll have to read the rest of Matthew 7. I encourage you to do it. We'll point out some of it, but the context makes it clear. This judgment they're speaking of is not hypocritical in your judgment. Jesus would himself say in John 7.24 to judge with righteous judgment. Judge not as don't judge in a hypocritical way. Examine yourself first. Because you are to judge, and in this context of this Matthew 7, there is judgment that is called for. Righteous judgment that is called for. Slip down to verse 15, where Jesus instructs his disciples to do this. Beware of false prophets. False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous Wolves. In other words, they, they look like they're helpful. They look like they're healthy, wealthy, and wise. Maybe they even preach some of that. They look good. They sound good. But in the heart, there's a problem. They're ravenous wolves. And how will you know this? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not by what they say, but what they do. And then it goes on, verse 16. Are are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? See, it's the same idea. Artificial fruit. That's what they have. So every, verse 17, every healthy tree that bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. That's how he presses this analogy. Examine what they do. And notice verse 18. This is why I had you turn so you could see that here too. He's distinguishing two categories. Fruitful and unfruitful. And in this particular illustration, the unfruitful can be considered diseased fruit, if you will, or bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot, cannot bear bad fruit. On the contrary, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Remember, this is an analogy. Don't press it too far. This is for you to grab a general idea. That's what he's saying. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, verse 19, is then cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, judgment awaits bad fruit. In this illustration, no fruit in the vine illustration. And thus you will, verse 20, make a judgment. You will recognize them by their fruits. There's a distinction there in this analogy of fruit. Good and bad, or or fruitful 
and fruitless in John 15. Similar idea, slightly different analogy. Difference between true possession of Christ and just a possession, profession that you possess him. And let me just stop here too, encourage you guys with little kids too. Your kids are going to make a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord early and often. And that's a good thing. Encourage them to do it. My children have made a confession to Christ multiple times. But I always hit back and ask them to examine their own heart. To see if they're truly in the faith. Do you, you really love Christ? Is there, is there something inside that is producing the fruit of righteousness that you can see and experience in your life. Matthew 7, 21 is the danger here because not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. And to say Lord twice there, to repeat it, means an emphatic statement of somebody who really professes the faith. But not everyone, Jesus says, who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I know, we don't want to stress that you're not redeemed because of your doing the will. That's not what we're saying at all. However, those that are redeemed will do his will. That's what we're saying. It is the fruit of regeneration is the righteous acts of the saints. And now, if I get to it, it'll be empowered, of course, by the Holy Spirit. Doing his will is the fruit of faith, not that which brings it about. It is, however, the necessary result. Back to John, and as you're getting back there, if you remembered 14, chapter 14 and verse 21, and really a number of times in 14, Jesus has already expressed the same concept. 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Loving his commandments is an indication of your heart. It doesn't bring about that relationship. It is the result of it. That's fruitless branches. Let's look at the fruitful branches back to John chapter 15. Verse 2, the fruitful branches, those that are really truly alive in Christ, not apostate, he says something about them. They're not only going to produce fruit, but notice the father, the vine dresser, has an action of pruning. Verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, okay, the fruitful ones, He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Then he goes on and says, you're already clean. So so that is an aspect of infusing some sort of righteousness into his beloved. It's that there is some work to be done. Sanctifying work, if you will. 
This is the discipline of the Lord. Cutting away those things that don't look like Christ. That might hinder. That might not help. This glorifies then God. Verse 8. He glorifies God by this action of the vine dresser, which is constant, including the cutting away in your own life, the discipline that he might bring to those fruitful branches. For what purpose? So that they might go in angst and anxiety, be depressed, hurt because of the pain? No, it is helpful. It is, verse 8, this is how my Father is glorified, magnified, so that His mercy and His grace, His loving kindness, the work of redemption is seen even more so that you will bear much fruit. It'll make it better. And then prove to be my disciples. One of the greatest things, beloved, is sometimes you may struggle in your own heart, in your relationship with Christ, and you walk away, if you will, wander, but God sends his pruning work to bring your heart back to him. And it's at those moments, I don't know if you've experienced that at times, but sometimes it's those moments you say, well, you know, yeah, the Lord's going to discipline those that he loves and not allow me to be an apostate and walk away. He'll bring a pruning action in my life. And so this isn't something that I cherish, isn't something I long for or desire, but I recognize God's usefulness in it in my life and his purposefulness in my life. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. I don't know why whatever's going on in your personal life, whatever's going on in the culture, whatever's going on in any situation you might think about. But I'll tell you one thing. In great difficult times, you will go to God in prayer. You will make your requests known to him. Sometimes when things aren't going all that bad, you don't care and don't think about the need to do that. But you do, always. And these are times which can at least help to that degree. God is glorified and you prove to be your disciples. Secondly, about this fruitful branches, notice that they are alive in Christ spiritually. That's the group that he's talking about. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Here's a mutual statement, isn't it? Think about it. It it isn't just something for you to do here. Christ is mutually abiding in the believer. He's a promise to abide with his saints. He has already promised that he and the Father would send the Holy Spirit to dwell with you forever. And it is as if the Godhead then is with you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God would dwell with his people 
Not in a short term, but forever. From the point of regeneration to remain, that is to abide forever. And for the Holy Spirit to actually seal the believer unto the day of redemption. It's a great promise. Oh, I might not be so confident in my abiding in Christ, but I'm very confident in his choice to abide in me. Do you see how that could be greatly comforted to the, those that are in Christ? Now let me just expand on this idea where he says, I'm gonna abide, you abide in me and I in you as far as our part in this abiding. Because I really think the emphasis here, you have to think of it in the bigger picture, there's two senses of this abiding. And in one, in one way, I don't really want to break them apart, but just for the purposes of the discussion, we will. It's not that they're mutually exclusive, they're inclusive of one and the other. And so, just to give you categories in your thinking to expand this idea of abiding, maybe you can think of it in the senses of this, a sense of salvation and a sense of sanctification, right? Salvation speaks of our position before God in Christ. Sanctification, we normally use it in ways to talk about our practice before men. They're not mutually exclusive because all that are saved are sanctified and the ultimate end of sanctification is glorification, right? It is being made perfectly right before God. When the believer dies, he stands perfectly right before God. There is no such thing as purgatory to make you better. Christ has already made you better. You're wearing the righteousness of Christ. There could be no better garment to stand before God. So there's no improvement to be done. But in this life, in this world, there is a working out of that sanctification in your life. And in that sense, a call to abide. I hope that's clear. Commentator by the name of Blum mentions here, he says that there's much confusion that results from failing to recognize that Jesus spoke of abiding in two senses. And I agree with him. He used it as a synonym for saving faith, he argues, in 656 of John. And that's that somewhat confusing phrase where he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's the idea. He, in the sense of salvation, you are united to Christ by his blood. However, he also used it to describe this idea of abiding in an intimate relationship that those who have exercised saving faith need to cultivate with God. And 831 is an example he cites. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. All believers abide in Jesus in that first sense. All those that are truly regenerate. But all do not continually abide in him in this second sense. That is, continually. Look at verse 9 in chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
And then here's the directive to abide in my love. And how do you demonstrate abiding in his love? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. He's, he's calling for a practical abiding in Christ. This first sense of abide is salvific. And the second one, then I would say, is sanctifying. Abiding in Christ in salvation is what we would describe as monergistic. It's all of Christ. It's of the vine dresser who accomplishes this. But the sanctifying aspect of abiding in him, of obeying his commandments, is really synergistic. And that is you cooperate with it. It is a connection to Christ that is essential. Look at verse 4. This branch then cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. It, it ha- you have to be connected to, if you will, the source of life. So you can't bear fruit unless you abide in Christ. Verse 5, whoever abides in me, and then I in him, that's that mutual reciprocal response, the union that we have with Christ, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can, here's the phrase, you can do nothing. This is an essential lesson for the disciples who would go out courageously to preach the gospel in a corrupt world, a world that would mock everything that they stood for and preached, and an impossible task that was given to them to preach the gospel, not just to their own community, but to all nations and to the ends of the earth. Impossible. On their own. But abiding in Christ, they would accomplish it. But even that accomplishment, that fruit, that work, it it still relates to, and that's why I don't want to make too clear of a distinction, it is the work of Christ in the life of the believer. Paul called the church at Philippi to work out their salvation. That's the imagery there. Work out in your life what God has worked in you. Be fruitful, if you will. Demonstrate it in your life. But recognize this, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even your working is not something that is self-generated. This fruit is not self-generated. But work you must. Engage you must. This is for God's good pleasure in that it glorifies God because it is him working in the lives of the believer. Fruitful branches produce abundantly. 
Notice in verse 5 it says, not just fruit, but much fruit to those who abide in Christ. The thief, beloved, has come to kill and destroy. Jesus Christ has come to give life and that you might have it more abundantly right now. John 10.10 There are many sacrifices to which a Christian must submit to in this life in following Christ. But I can assure you that the benefits far outweigh it. It is an abundance in Christ and not just the eternal weight of glory that awaits all, but even within this life to have the peace of Christ, the love of Christ, the assurance of Christ, the knowledge of God in control of absolutely everything. Abundance of fruit. Now, I've mentioned this word fruit a number of times, and I think most of us have a good idea about it, but let's just take a moment to review to some degree and then look at what's highlighted actually in this text. In general, as MacArthur in his study Bible would say, fruit, spiritual fruit, is the byproduct of a righteous life. Right? I would say the byproduct of those that are in Christ. Spiritual fruit. The Bible defines, he goes on and notes, fruit as leading people to Christ. If you love Christ, you're going to share it with someone else. And how does that love come about? It comes about what God has worked in your own heart, and then you express it to others. It's praising God. Hebrews 13. It's giving money, Romans 15. It's living a godly life, Hebrews 12, and displaying holy attributes, Galatians 5. But our text here, let's look at it, and I agree with that, but our text here gives an example that is a little unique and you might not have thought about, and it's not the only idea of spiritual fruit. It's just one that's emphasized in John 15 and perhaps worth looking at a little closer. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my, and my words abide in you. In other words, if you're actually truly in Christ and then his words are abiding in you, that is you're, you're obeying him, you're following Christ, You're in fellowship with Christ. You're in communion with Christ. Okay? You're not disobedient. Truly united. Following Christ. And then third, what's going to happen? Then this. Here's a statement. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Don't allow that to pass too quickly from your mind. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Note the conditions are to be truly regenerate in Christ, truly, and obedient to him, submissive to his word, his will. And then you can pray and it will be accomplished. And why would he answer anyone's prayer? Verse 8, to glorify the Father. 
God is glorified in this that you would then bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In context, the emphasis of fruit is this idea of praying. Both the asking in the first place and the answering in the second. We may focus just on the answering, but here the asking is important. Ask whatever you wish. This is asking from someone that is in Christ. John 14, 13, he essentially has already taught them the same concept. Jesus is circling around these ideas in 14 through 17. It's really a repetition of what he's already told them. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask, if, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That doesn't mean putting the coda in Jesus' name, although I typically pray that way. Some don't. That's fine. Whether you actually add that coda or not, it, that's immaterial. I like to do it because it draws my attention to the only reason I can pray and the only reason I can expect my prayers to be answered because of Christ. That's it. I'm praying in His name. And so I like to express it. You don't have to express it. I don't always. That is the thing. The, the idea is that you are in Christ and you are praying in accordance with Christ's word. With Christ's will. With Christ's wisdom. This fruit, this fruit in the life of the believer is the fruit of dependence on him in prayer. When you're anxious, is your fruit to go to him in prayer. Discouraged, despondent, afraid. Whatever the category might be, Take it to him in prayer. It glorifies God. And God is pleased to answer prayer. Matthew chapter 7. You can turn back there if you wish or I'll just read it for you. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he gives an illustration of this so that you understand who God is that you're praying to. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? I mean, unless you're just some sick, sadistic, wicked person, you know, this is not a normal thing, right? Your kid's hungry, you're going to feed him. You're going to feed him something healthy and wholesome. You're not going to put him in danger. And that's the illustration of you then who are evil. (laughs) In comparison to God, you're evil. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? That's the argument. Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Ask Him in prayer. Go to Him in prayer. I think it's a lost fruit 
of the righteous in many ways, as if it doesn't accomplish anything. Prayer, both the asking and the example, is a primary aspect of the fruit and fruitfulness of the believer. Yes, there are implicit things, though, that are not in our text. Affections, we've already talked about, that come about through the righteous affections and the righteous actions of the believer that are produced in their life because they're abiding in Christ. Affections are those immaterial things, thoughts, desires, states of mind. The actions would be those concrete physical responses. Affections are said to be the fruit of the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I'm not talking about artificially accomplishing this, but something that works in a sanctifying way in your life. Where you have a response of gentleness, patience, and kindness, and self-control. Again, these aren't easy things to accomplish, but they're not asking you to accomplish this on your own. It is through abiding in Christ. Allow His Word to abide in your heart. This is a natural response. And then, yes, if you respond in a different way, affection that is, that is not corresponding to good fruit, it is bad fruit, you'll repent and recognize he's faithful and just to forgive you of your, all your sin and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. But every once in a while, <laughs> maybe you see a fruit of the joy, of the patience, of genuine love and kindness and gentleness and patience. Maybe not compared so much to this person, but compared to who I was, yeah, <laughs> you've come a long way, but certainly not long enough. Actions, again, are those aspects. And in chapter 15, it does mention, as I already mentioned, his commands. In 15.10, keep his commands, all of his commands. You're going to abide in him. And demonstrate 15.17, we'll be on this next week, your love for one another. That is the love of the brethren. All of this then is fruit of the Spirit. Obedience to all of Christ's commands and a love for one another, that is the brethren, fulfilling all of the one another commands that are given in Scripture for our relationships with one another. Really, this fruit is another way of thinking about expressing the very characteristic of Christ which we be formed in his disciples and learn much of Jesus and most notably how much he spent time in prayer. In such great prayer that capillaries in his forehead actually burst got away many times in prayer. And he saw the fruit of his prayer. You know where it was? These disciples. 
and went about and preached the gospel. Continued to bear the righteous fruit of asking and seeing God glorified in the answer. I'll finish with this. Verse 8. This is the implication of this fruit bearing and why it's mentioned. This fruit bearing demonstrates that you are indeed a true disciple of Christ. Verse 8. It glorifies God because you're you prove to be his disciples. You engage with someone at some point in time and they finally see Christ in you. The hope of glory. Abiding in Christ, remaining in him, connected to him in a supernatural way, in a true way, and then continually abiding in him, will bear fruit. Abiding in a greater way will bear much fruit. And I hope you understand by our first reflection on this metaphor that all of those that are truly in Christ, all, all will bear fruit. But we're called to bear much fruit. It's accomplished through abiding in Christ alone the true vine, submission to the vine dresser, and truly remaining in Christ as your source and sustenance of life like a branch to a vine that will bear abundant fruit. Let us pray. Father, I do pray the truth of your word would grab our hearts and mind, use it in ways in which is appropriate to each of your children. May we be nourished by your truth and bear much fruit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I normally create a spot for you to reflect and think on these things privately where you're at. I'm going to give you time to do that now. If you've recognized that you perhaps are not Truly in the vine, you know you can confess Jesus Christ as Lord right now. Take a moment, not to me, but to him. And if there's some sanctifying work that needs to be done in your life, Christ is there for you too. Take a moment, think, reflect on these things, respond to Christ as he has spoken to you. Take a moment now.